Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word like always, Father God. It's truly a lamp unto our feet. And it's a light unto our path, Father God, because not just the world we live in is dark, but the heart we have is just as dark. We thank you, Father, that your word comes and is constantly liberating from the darkness within us, Lord God. As your spirit is cleansing the dark recesses of our heart, Father God, bringing clarity, biblical clarity to our minds as you renew our mind with the word of God. You sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth, Father God. Let us all, with open hearts, embrace the preaching of the word of God today, Lord. Teach us, Father God, what is our daily bread? Teach us from your word, Father God, what is it that sustains us? What is it that feeds us, Father God? What is it that motivates us? What is it that strengthens us, Father God? God, this is what we ask by grace in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've seen so far from this prayer, that this prayer finds us in that part of Luke's gospel that's dealing specifically with discipleship. That's why we call it the, the prayer of discipleship, because that's what it really is. It is a prayer of discipleship. It's a model prayer that contains so much. The first implications is just a framework of what the rest of the Bible says prayer should be. And we've been going through this over the last weeks, and as a matter of fact, I'm going to be on it for quite a while as I look into it. And I'm quite enjoying it and being challenged myself by it. And I'm very happy about that because it's nice to know we never arrive, isn't it? Yes. Isn't it nice to know that there's so much in us, and that that's, goes back to my prayer, that there is still darkness within our own hearts. There are things in our heart our mind doesn't know about yet. <laughs> it's, it's a sad reality, but it's part of being a disciple of Christ. It's part of being sanctified. It's a part of growing and maturing in our Christian faith that once in a while we have to say sometimes more than once in a while sometimes quite too often woe is me. Woe. Woe is me. Uh, a matter of fact as we grow in Christ this prayer like all biblical truth should take on deeper meaning. Have greater implications and stretch us and challenge us more now after 20-something years of being a Christian than when I first learned it. When I first started to understand it, it should get wider and deeper and, 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 and stronger and greater motivating me as it should all of us as we grow in our Christian faith. There's something we have to know here. The disciples themselves were called, I'm not going to get into all of them, to be swept up radically into the kingdom of God overnight. They were called for that. They were called to follow Jesus, see him crucified, all run home, all go back to their businesses, go back to being fishermen, think it's all over, their leader is dead, 
and all of a sudden, boom, what happens is a resurrection. They're swept up into the kingdom of God. Jesus is alive. He breathes into them the life of the Holy Spirit. They hang out for 40 days, watching the risen Lord, teaching them things concerning the kingdom. Then they're filled with the Spirit of God on Pentecost. They're, they're brought into it in a very special and dynamic way. And if you read the book of Acts, and if you're not doing anything this week, read the book of Acts and see how the Lord's prayer is fulfilled in the book of Acts. I want you to take some time and watch how the Lord's Prayer, those few verses, you see being fulfilled in the book of Acts. But me and you aren't radically overnight brought into the kingdom. We're saved instantaneously. We are. There's no question about it. It could be on a park bench. It could be in the gym. It could be in a service. It could be walking up to the altar. It could be in a song service. It could be a mother and a child. But once someone's born again, it happens right away. Seeds could be planted, but when... The conception happens, you're saved. But being radically swept up into the kingdom dynamics and giving your life to the Lord and following the Lord, and, and it, sometimes that does take time. As a matter of fact, I think it takes quicker time when you are part of a local church. There is no true discipleship outside the local church. There really isn't. It's the local church is the heart of God that brings us into discipleship to follow the Lord. And for us, this process of being radically transferred into the kingdom and learning to be a disciple takes time. That's why we have discipleship. That's why we have Sunday service. That's why we have Bible study. That's why we have Monday night men. We have the women's ministry. We do this so we learn to be greater, more truer, more loving, more caring disciples of Jesus Christ. It's part of our growth. This was intended primarily at first to, to see the corporate dimensions. And we spoke about the corporate dimensions of this prayer. Teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And it's important for us to know that because, though that's one of the primary reasons, but we also have this also in a function in whether it's me and my wife are praying or whether it's me and a friend are praying or me and another Christian are praying or whether you're praying in your own prayer, prayer life. These truths should have well, the trace elements should be in our personal prayer life. We should be concerned about the kingdom of God. We should be concerned about fellowship and forgiving one another. We should be concerned about how will be thy name. I'm going to just go over this a little bit and, and, and teach us, remember what we went over, the disciples saw something radically different about the way Jesus Christ prayed. There was not just his words, the substance of his prayers. There's this, this connection with God he called Father, Abba, and he's telling them too, he's your father here. They'll notice more radically on Pentecost. But he's teaching them. They're asking because they recognize something so different about the substance of his prayer, the fervency of his prayer, and, and the heartfelt desire for the kingdom of God to come. More can be said. We, we, I have preached the whole message on it. But also, when he says Father, it really has a double meaning. It's, it's Father of God is the God of all creation. Of course, we're all brothers and sisters through Adam. But more specifically through adoption, where we are called and we're given the Holy Spirit of God. And by that, we are called, uh, we have a, a sonship. We have the spirit of sonship in us by which we cry, Abba, Father. There's a unique relationship between believers. We truly are brothers and sisters. There's that old saying, there's nothing thicker than flesh and blood. Isn't that true? But there is something thicker. It's called eternal life. Our fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ 
is far more dynamic and everlasting than any just flesh and blood. I mean, as great as flesh and blood is, it's not eternal life. I will clearly spend eternity with everyone who's born again. There's plenty of people in my family I love that are not born again. And I won't be spending eternity with them. But you are my brothers and sisters in Christ. I will spend eternity with you through adoption, through the blood of Jesus Christ. We have a special relationship. We need to capitalize and know that special relationship. And hallowed, as we spoke about last week, reflects the inward desire that Jesus had to honor God in every thought, action, intention, motive, agenda, word, action. And he did it flawlessly. He never once stumbled on honoring God in everything he did. And that's how God is hallowed or honored in this world. That's how we revere God. Now, we don't, don't talk about God. We live for him. That is how God is honored. I'll tell you how God dishonored, as Paul told the Jews, the Gentiles blaspheme the word of God or the name of God because of you. Because you're supposed to know better. You're supposed to be teachers of the ignorant and leaders of the children and guides to the blind, but they blaspheme your name because you don't live for God. God is honored through our sanctification, our discipleship our love for God, our reverence for God, of taking every thought captive, of obeying God. That's how God is hallowed in this world. Why should they believe in anything about the Jesus I preach if I'm living like everybody else in the world? They can get that anywhere. Our actions and our life have to go hand in hand with the God we speak about. That is our job. Your kingdom... It signifies two things. It signifies the consummation when Christ finally comes back and sets up the, the eternal kingdom of God where righteousness and peace dwell forever. But it also speaks about all the means to that end. You need to be a crucified Savior. Otherwise, there is no kingdom. A crucified Savior would help. There needs to be a resurrection of the crucified Savior. There needs to be an ascension of the crucified Savior where he's at the right hand of God as Lord in Christ, as high priest interceding for us to bless the work of the ministry. There needs to be a pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the church so that the, per the church is empowered to be his witnesses in a world that wants nothing to do with God. And we also need to preach the gospel because there's no kingdom without the kingdom message. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Just as important as we've been looking at is the prayer itself is the immediate parable and the example through contrast about God's generosity. We didn't read it today. We've been reading it the last couple of weeks. And it, it's important for us to know that. Jesus just doesn't say pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, forgive us each other and so on and so forth. He doesn't teach that. He teaches us the example that God is willing to give the kingdom. And when we pray, we should pray with fervency and expectancy. I'd ask everyone, how much fervency and expectancy is in our prayer life that the kingdom of God is going to come personally in our life or be used by God? So he gives that little parable that God might cheap. If you're persistent, he'll give. He doesn't give scorpions when you need bread. If you continue to seek, ask and knock, he'll give you of the Holy Spirit. There's two reasons why he gives these little parables in the story. 
to encourage persistent, bold prayer concerning kingdom activity and effective ministry in our personal life and in our witness. And second, I want you to hear this one. I want you to hear the last one. I want you to hear everything I said. <laughs> Is to cast away all doubt that God might not answer. If you knew God was going to answer, you'd be praying constantly. It's not a lack of laziness. Much of our lack of prayer is because we just don't really think God is going to answer. Or especially as fast as we want him to answer. Their prayers concern the kingdom of God in their personal life and their daily needs. We ask, seek, and knock represents this. It represents not just persistence, but entering the, the throne of grace with boldness. And understand this kind of prayer. It's a natural reflection. A reaction to God's self-revelation of his generosity. That's what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying that when you seek, ask, and knock, it's God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You can trust God. Continue to ask. Continue to seek. Continue to knock. Be persistent. Be bold. Go to the throne of grace. We have a merciful and grateful high priest that can hear us and sympathize with all our needs. Don't stop going. Continue to go. Continue to go. Continue to seek. Continue to pray. God is generous. That's a revelation of God's nature. The whole Bible talks about that. Did you ever read Abraham's story? I see a generous God. You ever see Isaac and Jacob? I see a generous God. Did you ever read the Joseph story? I see a generous God. Did you ever read the Exodus? I saw them throwing the riches at the people of God when they left. Because God's a generous God. Have you ever read Joshua 21.45? I hope you did. It goes like this. Not one of God's great promises failed. They all came to pass. Everyone. Was God not generous to David? After long years of running around and he took the kingship, was God not generous to Solomon? Was God not generous to Christ when he raised him from the dead after he committed his spirit to him? Tell me, is God not generous to you and me today? Then why don't we seek? Why don't we knock? And why don't we ask? Because there's a natural bent in man's heart not to trust God. And do you know why that's there? Because Satan planted it in the human heart. When he told Adam and Eve, you will not die. Because God knows when you eat, you will be like him. And understand something. Satan sowed the seed of doubt in the human heart. And the personally, as much as I read, and I read a lot on biblical theology, I don't hear enough of that person. I think that so much of what the Word of God says in living by faith is just to go to establish that God is trustworthy, that God is faithful to His Word. Adam never knew that. He had to find out the hard way that he would die, and he would be cast out. And now we have to relearn, as the parable teaches us, that God's more than generous. More than generous to give us the kingdom. If we seek, ask, and knock. Let's go to our text. 
as today's, I had to make sure, our daily bread. Actually, I'm going to take a sip of water. I'm allowed to stop. <coughs> Give us our daily bread. There's more here that meets the eye, and I want to try to bring that out today. You know, believers 2,000 years ago really basically lived hand to mouth. And besides that, uh, most believers in the Bible, I don't know if you know this little tidbit of information, are poor. Isn't it the poor who will have good news preached? Doesn't James teach us that God shows the poor to be rich in faith? They never really had the luxury of planning far advance on their suffers. You had to live from day to day. It was a really a basic necessity on how to live. There were, there were farmers. They, were, they lived off the land. They were fishermen. They were you know, day laborers. They, they, there was no great uh, saving. They had to live from moment to moment, from day to day. And bread was usually baked in the morning, and it was a staple of, of the Jewish diet. So it really does have a basic principle to it, a basic, practical, daily need of nourishment and sustenance to make it through another day. It really does. But truly, there's so much more to this than, than meets the eye. There has to be more. Jesus has to be saying more than pray that God keep you from starvation. Oh, God, give me the daily bread. I, I, I want to live as a, a pauper down here. and Just give me a crumb so I can make it. You know, there's some kind of false sense of piety. That's not what Jesus is saying. Bread in Scripture has many metaphor, metaphorical uh, meanings. It could mean the, uh, the bread that God fed Israel for 40 years in the wilderness, the manna that came down from heaven. It could mean uh, Jesus says, I'm the what? Bread of life. The Eucharist is God's reminder that he's with us. He's fellowshipping with us because of Christ. And also our final salvation is seen as some kind of magnificent wedding feast of the marriage supper of the Lamb where God provides. And the one thing it all means is that God provides. Whether it's our daily sustenance or it's our salvation or it's our final destiny in heaven, it's all God's provision. But here I think Christ has something more specifically in mind. We shouldn't limit this teaching of daily bread to just that little obvious, just a little morsel of food for another day. It has so much more meaning. It's so much more pregnant. It, it, it's so much more rebut, uh, robust that we have to really just sort of get into the New Testament a little more to see what I believe Jesus is implying. And we're going to find that out in the next chapter. And we're going to go to chapter 12. I'm going to read 20 verses of Scripture. I'm going to make some comments on daily bread from there. Starting in verse 13. As soon as I'm there, I will let you know. Okay? Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetous, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them, his disciples, a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plenty. And he thought to himself, Hmm, what shall I do? 
For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build large ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. He's a fool, Jesus is saying. He goes on to say, and he said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, like that rich man was, nor about your body, about what you put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravings. They neither sow nor reap. They neither store, have storehouses or barns. And yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will, you, will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, it is God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give them to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old. With a treasure in heaven that does, that does not fail. Where no thief approaches and no more destroys. For where your treasure is, there also is your heart. So we read these texts and we say, what does this have to do with daily bread? Well, hopefully you saw God teaching us really what to seek for in these scriptures and how God provides these three sections are directly connected together, the ones we just read. There's an example of a family squabble that starts the whole chain reaction over money. It gives Jesus an ample opportunity to teach, teach about riches and how to trust God for daily bread. You see, this man had no concern at all for God. He was not rich towards God. He worried, he worked, he fretted, and guess what? He accumulated but there was something in the equation. He died suddenly. And he had no spiritual inheritance. He was not saved at all. Jesus calls that foolish. He also says in another place, what does a prophet a man to gain the whole world but forfeit, forfeit his soul? On the other hand, we have this other story. And it teaches how Christ's disciples who are servants in his kingdom should have a whole different approach to life. For life is more than temporary earthly joys, is what he's saying here. Asking, seeking, knocking for daily provision in this life. And I want you to listen. As we are working in the kingdom of God, daily bread is about those who are working in the kingdom of God. Every Christian is called to be part of the kingdom. Every Christian is in the kingdom. Every Christian is doing something. You came to church today, 
You're in the kingdom. You're doing something in the kingdom. You came and set up the soundboard today. You're doing something in the kingdom of God. You came and you set up something. You're doing something in the kingdom of God. You prayed for this service. You're doing something in the kingdom of God. You're giving to the ministry. You're doing something in the kingdom of God. You're telling a brother and sister, how's your life doing? You're doing something in the kingdom of God. You're leading worship. You're doing something in the kingdom of God. You're praying for another Christian. You're doing something in the kingdom of God. You're loving another Christian. You're doing something in the kingdom of God. You're telling a sinner about Christ, you're doing something in the kingdom of God. Once you're saved, you're doing something in the kingdom of God. And as we're doing this, we're laying up treasure in heaven. Now here's what I want to talk about. That alone is what Jesus says makes us rich. That's riches. Being proactive in another human being's life is the riches that Jesus Christ is teaching. Treasuring heaven and going through ministry and kingdom work is part of joy. It's part of future hope. It's, it's having blessed contentment. Because more is less in the kingdom of God. The more I'm consumed with God, the less I'm consumed with the things of this world that give me anxiety. The more I'm loved with God and the things of God, the less I, the more peace I have. Amen. Here's the principle. Kingdom work doesn't always look profitable. Matter of fact, most of the time it looks unprofitable. It looks like hard work. It can almost look like it's a waste of time. Insignificant. Nothing's happening. Uh, I can't see the wheat, the, the, the seed uh, being watered by God. and the, not, Nothing's coming and so on and so forth. You know, uh, you know how am I going to start? Where's the 401k plan? Where's the vacation? Uh, what's the package deal over here, God? Before I really get into this, uh, you know, I, I really want to know what's in it for me. Uh, you know, and the there's nothing in it for you. <laughs> Let me tell you right now. But is there? Except this. The greatest reward you could ever have. The worship and service of God. That's what's in it for you. At Christ's expense. That's man's greatest joy and greatest end is to enjoy God. Can I enjoy God and do nothing in the kingdom of God? Can a man or woman honestly say I'm enjoying and loving God and do nothing. His hands are not to the plow, but yet I'm enjoying God. Because all God's about is the kingdom. It's the only thing he's building on earth is the kingdom of God. He's building a church. All God's resources and all God's energy are going into the gospel preaching. That's it. So how can I enjoy God and not be part of the kingdom work at all? Here's the answer. You can think you are, but you're not. Every Christian's called to be hands-on. Whatever gift God has given you. If it's one talent, three talents, five talents, it makes no difference. If God has given me five talents and I was doing the work of two talents, I'd be miserable. If God gave me one talent and I was trying to do five talents, I'd be miserable. God just wants us to do what he has equipped us to do. And to do it with fervency and prayer, and with joy. Jesus is acknowledging that life has its necessities. 
make no mistake about it. He says, fear not, little flock. Well, why does he say that? Do you know I went through at least ten commentaries to see one comment on those four words, and I didn't get one. Not one. Why is Jesus telling them, fear not, little flock? Do you think he thought they were afraid? How would you feel about signing up for the kingdom of God when there's nothing involved? There's there's nothing tangible. There's no bonuses. There's no raises. There's no salary. How can I profit without toil and worry? I need to be like a rich fool. I need to profit. I need to toil. I need to worry. I need to tear down the old bonds. I need to have excess. Jesus' answer was, look. Look at nature. Look how God provides for even the smallest of his creatures in all their little details. He contrasts the natural world and how God provides for the rich. He, he contrasts the natural world with God provides for with the rich man's self-deceived world. But he left out one major detail. This rich man could not add one more day to his life. Man, he could add to his bonds. But when God calls, the show's over. And in the end, he perishes. And if we just seek these things the way the Gentiles do, the necessities of life, I'm going back to bread of life, I'm the daily bread, I'm not away from that. He says, eagerly seek. The NASB says that. That means to lust after. When we lust after more of this world, it can only give you anxiety. The truth of the matter is, the more you have, the more you're worried. You're going to worry about who's getting it, how much the government's taking who wants it, who's lying to you because they really want it. They're saying it's not about the money, but it's about the money. It's always about the money. What happens is that these pursuits turn into anxieties and an obstacle in advancing the kingdom of God, both in our life, personally, and that's holiness, in the life of other people. They begin to consume us and to direct us. They direct our energies, our desires, our time. Churches, well, if I get there, I get there. And if it's this or it's that, you know, because I'm consumed with the things of the world. And God's in the way. And and, and there's this tension that naturally comes up. These anxieties become a life unto themselves. Believers who are caught up in this kind of Christianity are never profitable in the kingdom. They don't have time to be profitable in the kingdom. Because to be profitable in the kingdom of God takes time and energy. And if I am so caught up in the worldliness, I'll have no time for God or spiritual. I'll leave no legacy. I'll leave no legacy. I won't touch one life. You cannot serve two masters, Jesus says. I'll either love one and hate the other. Here's the point. Praying for daily bread. Are you ready? Hold on. Hold on. And see where we're at when it comes to praying for daily bread. It speaks to that part of us that loves this world. And the things in it. 
those things that cause anxiety more, bigger, better. Praying fervently for daily bread means that we begin to trust God to provide what is needed. Praying for daily bread means I'll stop praying for what I think I really need or what I'm saying I really want. Because the things I really want bring anxiety like the rich fool. In reality, praying like this is the act of the highest degree of humility. Because what we're saying is, God, give me what I need to sustain me and nothing more. It's attributing to God the right to determine what we should have or should not have. And this is scary to American Christians. Daily bread is scary to pray for an American because it might mean God's going to take something away, the goodies. But the goodies are getting in the way to effective prayer and effective ministry. Because I'm consumed with the goodies and the things of the world that I should have. If I was praying for daily bread, I'd have probably a greater perspective from heaven. I would pray differently. I would enjoy differently. I'd have contentment with less in my life. Without the anxieties and the worries. And I'd probably resemble a sparrow or a raven who God takes care of. And maybe even dress me greater than Solomon as a lily in the valley. This is very scary. It scared me. It made me reflect on my life, on what I have, what I still want, what I still desire in life. It's very awkward to pray this daily bread prayer. It's very awkward to say, God, you do have the right to determine what I really need in life. You have the right to determine what I should have and what I should don't have. Am I wrong about that or am I right? How many people are really saying, God, if things in my life are in the way, strip it away. Take it. Take the whole package, God. If it's causing me, if it's causing to be an obstacle in the kingdom growth in my life and in the ministry. And we're all in ministry. Every sermon, every prayer, every blessing of God goes to chip away at this basic human frailty of not trusting God enough and wanting more. Proverbs 37 and 9 says this. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty or riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Some translations say for today. Lest I be full of full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profound the name of my God. This is the Old Testament companion to what we read today, daily bread. God, if too much is going to be, who would in their right mind what American Christian would say, God, if it's too much, take it away. Take it, take the country club away. I don't need it. 
Get rid of it. Take that vacation I'm going on again. Take it away. Remove the car from me. Remove this. Remove that. Just strip it away, God. Strip away all the obstacles to kingdom growth in my Just give me daily bread, God. It's going to have your blessing on it. It's all I need. Maybe if I have too much, I'll be puffed up, God. Or maybe if I don't have enough, I'll steal. Maybe I'll complain for the rest of my life. Maybe, what is it? What is it, God? Am I in the right place? Am I eating? I've never seen a Christian beg for bread. Has anybody seen a Christian saying, I'm starving to death? Would someone feed me? I'm starving. I'm a born-again believer. I see the signs. Feed me. I'm a Christian. They do well on the street. And I say that with a little bit of sarcasm, but it's a truth, too. If they're genuine, God will feed them. God will feed them. Let's go back to this prayer of daily bread. Doesn't it fit into thy kingdom come? What's an obstacle to the kingdom in our life? Do we have that deep humility to say, God, just give me what I need? If too much is going to take me away from you somehow, some way, or if too much is going to make me ineffective, or the desire to get more is going to make me less effective, because when we want more, it takes time, energy, it takes finances, it takes a lot of things. Let's go to application. I'll ask you a question. Have we not all seen how the desires for riches and success can hurt earthly relationships? How many people know a workaholic in their life? How many parents can say, how many Christians can say I was a workaholic? Tell me, for the workaholic father, the workaholic mother, how nurturing can that be to family life? How nurturing can 80-hour work week be to raising three children? Come on. So you provide everything. But their hearts are empty. Do you know how many people I know fit this description? Personally in my life? It's okay to say we failed. We live in a fallen world. We're sinners. But as Christians, we, don't, we, we can go to the Lord. Does this mean we should all just be poor? Does the Bible say that? It's better to be poor? It doesn't say that. Listen, success is good. Success is good. It's good for people to see successful Christians who are still engaged in kingdom. As long as success doesn't take me away from the work of God. Whatever sphere of influence we're in, lawyers, doctors, Indian chiefs, makes no difference. It's wonderful for people to see rich and wealthy, successful people bowing humbly before God. It's also good for the world to see poor people who are joyful and saying, praise God. It's the same. It's not our personal ministry to try to weed out the materialist in the Christian church. Between God and a Christian. Because as Americans, few of us are in want of anything. And God has to speak to all our hearts. It's important for all of us to say, you know, God, 
Are you trying to get my attention on something here? I know what God's speaking to me about. Listen, before you heard this, I had to live this for the last week. I know what God could be talking to me about. And I've got to be willing to give that up. I don't know if he is or not. But I'll tell you one thing. I've got to be willing to say, you know, God, if this is an obstacle and I don't see it, it has to go. Just give me the daily bread, God. That'll do. And like I said, how it applies to all our lives, it's all different. We all come from different backgrounds. Economically, we're different. Uh, you know, you can have little, and what little you have can be a great obstacle to your walk with God. You can have a lot, and it's not an obstacle, because it belongs to God. You can have nothing, and it's still an obstacle, because you want it so bad, you can't hear God. So it's not about who has a little, who has a lot. It could all be an obstacle. We just all have to be willing, if God says, I want this, to give it up. Because it all belongs to God anyway. As I said before, in the kingdom of God, many times more is less. Or I should say, less is more. The less I have, the more effective I could possibly be. If I'm consumed with more, I'm consumed to getting better, I'm consumed to getting bigger, I'm more, whatever it is, if I'm consumed with anything, consumed with anything in this world or this body which is made for more than clothing, which is made for more than food, if I'm consumed with anything, it could be idolatry and take me away from effective living for God. Jesus says, and I'll close with these verses, it's God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. The kingdom of God is not brick and mortar. It's people. That's what rich in God is. People. He says that it's God's good pleasure to give you needy people to nurture. It's God's good pleasure to give you people. I can tell you right now, I've had a lot of joys in my life, but there's no greater joy, and I mean this, to listen to someone tell me the testimony of God's work in their heart. Nothing. Nothing could ever be greater than seeing tears flow out of a human being's life that was weeks or months or years before that, living in the grossest darkness, in the grossest of sins, saying, praise God, I'm a different human being. That is riches. That is what the heart needs. It is people work. God makes us rich with people. We're people rich. We're gospel relationship rich. That's rich. We mourn with those who mourn and we rejoice with those who rejoice. And as I close, I'll say this. This naturally flows into the next section which says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others so that we can live in harmony and unity in this world that is fractured by sin. Father, we bless you. We thank you for every good and perfect gift, Father God. Thank you for not just sustaining us with daily bread, but challenging us with Let your wills be done in our life. God, I pray that this sermon seeks deep into the heart of this ministry and this church and everybody in here. whether it's too much or too little, if we're worried about it, Father God, and these worries are turned into anxieties, and these anxieties become obstacles to any kind of true, deep 
Let us be satisfied.